It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. Father, we desire more of you today. We desire to see you more clearly, to be brought into a greater depth of intimacy with you. Lord, I pray that if there's anything in us that is obstructing that forward progression, that you would gently touch it so it could be removed. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be brought into a greater understanding of humility this morning and truly cherish your humility in the process. May we reflect in a deep way upon uh, who you are and what you have done for us, and may we cherish it afresh. Lord, we are the most blessed people on earth. We know you. We have been chosen by you. We have been called by you. We have become your children. And Lord, we just thank you for that uh, this morning. I pray that you would anoint me to communicate and anoint all that are present here this morning and those that are streaming and those that will hear this via podcast to be able to apprehend and to grip these truths. Lord Jesus, we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, well, I've been going through a series called Life Lessons, and uh, it's been a profound uh, process for me just to reflect upon some of the key building blocks of my life. It's, it's interesting. It'd be fascinating to have you guys. We have a couple ministry leaders in here uh, that if we did the same thing and just sort of said, okay, go back through your life and say, what are the most important tools that God has entrusted to you and put in your tool bag? And what would those be? And if you were to talk on those, of how you learned them and then how you use them, I mean, it'd be fascinating for any ministry leader that has uh, done this for a, a long stretch of time to walk through that. And that's sort of what I've been doing. And it's been invigorating for me just to freshly recall the work of grace uh, in my life. <clears throat> this, is, this is a very significant one. It's funny because even as I've been progressing, there's more and more that keep coming out because they're, you could even say it this way, they're deeply compacted. It doesn't mean that I don't know them. It just means that they're not uh, the most obvious things in my life that I'm going to answer if someone said, so give me, give me some of your life lessons. Uh, these are the ones that are sort of the bedrock. Uh, they're even lower than I oftentimes would initially think. And I'm going to call this one the lowest seat, and that's sort of a giveaway uh, of the idea if you know uh, how Jesus refers to this in uh, the New Testament. But uh, let's just build sort of an understanding of where I'd like to go with this and what God has really taught me in this. So I I have a desire for revival. I I know that uh, many of us in this room do. Whatever we would define that as, there's all sorts of different forms of revival out there, and some I would I would say I, I have nothing to do with that. I don't want to. I'm not asking for that sort of revival. You know, where you start barking like dogs, clucking like chickens, and uh, roaring like a lion. No, no. I'm interested in the good old-fashioned version that uh, causes a man to break down, recognize his sin afresh, and to have a fresh invigoration, a fresh wind in his soul. Uh, to carry forth the gospel into this generation. No matter what he looks like, he doesn't care if he looks like the fool, but there's a lost and dying world that needs to hear. 
And it's just the movement within the church of the Holy Spirit afresh just to pick us up and animate this body so that it begins to function as Christ would have it function. So before every revival, there is something that happens. So any of us that have ever studied revival, we know that there's always a precursor, and that is prayer. Prayer is always the precursor to revival, and so if you see a revival, it's because someone's praying. And so one of the thoughts that I would have, again, it's, it's like I could just teach on prayer and say that's a life lesson, and we need to be praying, but there's something that seems to even be a precursor to prayer. And for a vessel to be used to pray, to then bring about revival, there is something that needs to take place. And that's sort of the life lesson I'm wanting to poke at today. Before every prayer for revival, there's humility. So humility seems to be the precursor of the vessel being readied to pray, which then is the precursor to seeing the world change. And so this is a, if you could say it this way, a precursor of a precursor. This is a beginning point in each of our lives, how we respond to God. When we start out, uh, we have an obstinance. We have a pride in our bearing. It's basically the essence of sin. It's me in control of my life. My way, this is the way I desire it. And then one of the beginning movements of grace is that we step down off that throne. Instead of claiming something that is not ours, we relinquish it and we give it to the one who deserves it. He purchases with his blood. Hey, Lord, this belongs to you now. We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And that's literally how the strength of Christianity emerges. It says, humble yourself and he will lift you up. And so many of us try and lift ourselves up and therefore we are destroyed instead of recognizing that the secret to growth in the kingdom is to go low, is to take the lowest seat. And so this has been a very, very significant thing in my life because it's not just the precursor to prayer, when then the precursor to revival, this is, you know, in the global sense, this is the precursor to the formation of everything that is good in my life. In other words, if I'm going to take a step forward, oftentimes God has to freshly bring me to a place of humility. And I think in, in our minds we have a tendency to think, well, once you've been humbled, well, then can't you just move from there and, and just move forward and you'll never have to struggle with that again? But there seems to be a fresh need in us, and that's why I think pick up your cross daily is an important thing. To pick up a cross, it's a, it's a symbol of shame in a culture. And so to deliberately choose to pick up a cross every day and say, no, I'm willing to identify with that. No, I'm willing to go in this direction. I think is, if I could put you know, some type of metaphorical picture to it, that's the life lesson. It's like, no, no, Eric, this isn't a once-in-a-lifetime thing where you humbled yourself, and yes, praise God that you confessed your sin, and that audience, you risked that audience thinking of you funny. But it's every day saying, okay, Lord, this is my lifestyle. I'm willing to live a humble lifestyle. And that's, you know, there's a little stickiness in this. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, it shows this pattern that I just referenced. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So even though humble themselves is a part of the flow, it is also a beginning uh, to it. And so there is something we desire for a restoration and sometimes this is our individual life, and we are the land that needs to be healed, and there is a pattern for it right now. 
we're called by his name, so what we need to do is humble ourselves. We need to pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. And what that does is that's, you know, I call that the, the, the principle of farming. If, if you as a farmer do what God tells you to do with that soil, till it, all right, plant seed, all right, pat that seed down, water it, weed it, water it, weed it, water it, weed it, you're going to get a crop. And that's exactly the same principle here. You do the basics, and what you receive is the promise. In other words, do what God's asking you to do, and that starts with humility. Humble yourself. There's a funny debate. I'll bring it up every now and then because I, I've run into this, and it's, uh, to me, it just sort of falls into the category of ridiculous, but you know, to each his own as far as what we consider ridiculous. But uh, there's, there's a whole debate over you know, if you should call Jesus, uh, Jesus. And you know, some people say that comes from Zeus. And I would say, no, no. No, that doesn't come from Zeus. It comes from Isus, uh, which is the Greek. And the Holy Spirit carried along the writers of the New Testament to write it as Isus. And so the Holy Spirit called him Isus. So I think it's okay because you know, the Greek didn't have a J sound. And so when it got transliterated for us, it became Jesus. It's okay. It's, it's his name, and it, it's not a violation of who he is and a degradation. It's still the name above all names in the English language. Uh, and so that same crowd has a tendency to, you know, they, his name is Yeshua. It's the Hebrew, and Hebrew is a higher language. And so in heaven, we will speak Hebrew. And I have a very high regard for the Hebrew language. If you study it, you do venerate it. I mean, it is a, an impressive language. I mean, in so many regards, there's so many uh, layers of depth to it especially compared to the English language. You know, like an, uh, an aw sound in uh, just the, al- the aleph in, uh, in Hebrew, has mo- it's like an alphanumeric. It has symbology to it. It has, uh, it has a numerical value. It means one. It's like, well, you know, what does A mean to us? Well, it means A. There's no dimension to it. There's no depth. And so, yeah, I can see it. The, the Hebrew language is impressive. So then there's other people that say, well, but the Holy Spirit spoke the New Testament in Greek, so I think we'll speak Greek in heaven. You know, you know, there's a pretty good argument behind that. It's like, okay, well, the higher revelation was given in Koine Greek, so. And then you have people that argue that it's going to be English because this is the bridge language uh, for our modern day, and so we might as well all just learn it. Now, okay, now, do you see why I'm saying this is totally ridiculous? I mean, do people actually debate about these things? And uh, so... I, I've solved the riddle by saying I know the language of heaven, and that is its humility. That's one thing we know is that God speaks the language of humility in all that he does. And so whether it comes forth in Hebrew, whether it comes forth in Koine Greek, whether it comes forth in English, when God speaks, he speaks in the language of humility. And the reason I bring that up is because as he changes us, as he transforms our life, He wants to teach us not how to speak Hebrew and Greek, but how to speak humility. And this is such a foundational level training that he wants to work inside of us. So in Luke 14, he's going to get to the the whole point of why I named it this and why my life lesson is called the lowest seat. He, speaking of Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. So Jesus is seeing a situation, he's recognizing that everyone tends to gravitate towards the best places, the best seats. 
there are certain seats in every situation or circumstances that we know culturally would be deemed better. And so Jesus is noticing, yeah, and this crowd's no different. They all have that same propensity to gravitate towards the best places. We do too. This is just hot-wired into us. We all have a tendency to gravitate towards what we know others would perceive as being higher. I mean, why would we, why would we deliberately choose to go into a seat that people would deem lower? Well, that's a really good question because we wouldn't do that. We have a sense of dignity, and so we would never naturally do this. And so that's why this parable is so significant. Saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So there's the principle right there once again. You desire restoration in your soul. So he says, humble yourself. Pray and seek my face. Turn from your wicked ways. It starts with this humility. And that's how restoration comes. You want to be lifted up? He says, humble yourself and you'll be lifted up. The principle of the kingdom is based around this and yet I think it's important for us to note, and this is why it's a life lesson for me, is that this is backwards to our thinking. Our natural man thinking, the way we're trained and the way this culture will instruct us is promote yourself. Get your name out there. Have everyone take note of who you are. Take the best seat. If it's available, claim it. And so this goes against our grain. This is a, a violation of our wiring. And Jesus comes and shares something with us. He says, when you're invited to that wedding feast, when you study the seats, I want you to deliberately choose the lowest one. Because when you're in that lowest seat, then I can bring you up. If you choose a higher seat, I'm going to have to lower you down until you get to that lowest seat. <laughs> when you get to the lowest seat, I can start to work with you. It's like God wants to teach us how to aim in a completely different direction. Is this easy? No. And I think that's why we have a tendency to gravitate away from this truth and to allow it to be diminished in the church because we don't, we're not attracted to it. And yet God is. This is how he works. When he came to this earth, he chose the lowest seat. I don't know if you've ever thought it through of how he could have arrived. Here is a king coming to his people. I mean, pomp and circumstance is the history of kingdoms. So that's where the term even comes from, pomp and circumstance. It's how a king arrives. So if a king is going to arrive, you set it up. You stage it. And the king is very aware of what is taking place because in the mindset, that's how you establish the respect and the honor. So if you want to establish respect and honor, you arrive with fanfare. And so one of the things that has always struck me, you know, because we read the Christmas story a lot, and it, it oftentimes gets so plain to us because we've heard it. I remember my dad would read it. He'd go, it, it was almost like the duty, like, well, it's Christmas, and so he opens it. Let's read. 
And, it, and I was just like, could we get to the gifts? Okay, could we move past this? So it actually became more of a, a stumbling block for me, and I had to allow it to be reinvigorated. But the angel, angels come to shepherds, okay? Now, that, that's, it's such a glorious scene that we oftentimes lose sight of who they're coming to. They're coming to the lowest rung of people in the entire society and proclaiming that he has come. That is the exact opposite, most backwards form. That is the lowest seat you could ever take. It's like, hey, let's make an announcement. And the angels are like, who, who can we go to? And, they go, and God says, let's, let's share it with the shepherds. And the angels look at each other like, are you serious? Yeah, let's share it with them. That's who I'm coming for. I want to go to the lowest right there. He goes to the shepherds. And then he says, this will be a sign to you. How will you recognize this king? This will be a sign. He will be lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Okay, now uh, just let's pause there. This is how you will know the king has come. He'll be lying in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. That's how you'll recognize him. And he'll be wrapped in peasantry. How will you recognize the king? And here's what's always struck me. How will you recognize the king has entered into our life? Is it, is it different? I mean, should we come forth with the fanfare and the pomp and circumstance, claim the best seat? Or will you see us announcing it to the shepherds? Will you see us being willing to lie down in a feeding trough and say, yeah, I know I'm going to be taken advantage of but I belong to Jesus and I recognize my value and my significance is not found in your opinion of me, but his. This is how he gave himself to me so I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Okay, you, you follow me? This is, this is backwards. This is, it's backwards to us, but it's, it's Christ. This is who he is and when he moves inside of us, this is the education that he wants to bring us into. He wants to train us in humility. Gravitating towards the seat of honor. One of the challenging things I've run into in ministry even is that when I travel, people want to give me the seat of honor. And I don't, you can put yourself in my, my shoes. So they'll do special things for me, right? And I remember Ben Zorn's traveling with me I don't know if you guys ever heard this story. <laughs> and it, it was really hard for me because Ben was traveling with me and this, the Indonesians were receiving me and I'm a pastor. And to them, I'm, I'm not just a pastor, I'm an American pastor. And I'm not just an American pastor, I'm an author, okay? And I mean, this is a big deal. And so this guy, this author is coming in. And so I wasn't, I, I was so jet lagged and messed up when I first got there that uh, I want to blame it on that. But uh, when they swooped in, they were giving me, they were fawning over me. Sort of like to touch me was like a big deal, which is very awkward. And uh, so we packed our stuff into their vehicle, and they put me in the front seat, which I didn't know how significant that was. And Ben, <laughs> who they had no idea who Ben was. Like, who is this guy? And uh, he got stuck in this rear back seat. He was like all uh, stuck again because he was... He was not the one that they came to pick up. He was just sort of bonus luggage. And I remember driving down the road, even though I was not very alert and my brain was a little foggy, and just realizing something was very wrong in this scene. That technically what should be happening in this scene is poor Ben, who, by the way, like is a pastor, and it, but 
they, they didn't know who he was. He, he was the no-name guy. He got stuck in the back with the luggage. Meanwhile, I got stuck in the front. And even as we're driving down the road, I'm thinking, what I should have said is, no, put me in the back. Give this seat to Ben. Why would we give it to Ben? Who is Ben? And it's like, well, once you get to know him, you'll find out who Ben is. He carries a big stick. But the point is, it, these are the situations I run into, and do I take that seat if I'm given it? Those are tension points, because culturally, I don't want to be offensive. But here's the key for me. I want to be alert and aware to recognize that in every situation, there are lower seats. And I want to always allow the Holy Spirit to say, that seat, Eric. But God, this seat is already open for me, has my name on it. Would I be willing to take that lower seat. And that's the test in every situation. I want to do that. And I want all of us as Christians to be fighting over lower seats. Hey, that's mine. I was here first. Hey, you can't take the lowest seat. One of the, I remember this one man sharing, this is the competition that men should have because we tend to be competitive, right? It's just like we look for the lowest seat in the room and then we go to that person and we wash, we take out a bowl and a towel and we wash their feet. And then someone else is like, hey, that guy can't get away with that. And so then that guy goes and gets a bowl and a towel and kneels down and washes that guy's feet as he's washing the other one. And then someone else is like, what? They, they can't take the lowest seat. And so as a result, you're constantly seeking the low position and washing each other's feet. It's like, you know what? That's the way that we as men probably should be competing with each other is competing for the lowest position. It just sounds fun too. So Matthew 18 at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him. What a moment. They're, they're wondering, hey, wh- how, how can I get that high seat? I, I, I want to be the greatest in heaven. I mean, it's embarrassing even thinking about it, but this is still, he's exposing a thinking pattern that's in all of us. I want to be the greatest Christian in history. I want, I want people throughout history to look at me and say, Now, that was a man that lived it. You see, we gravitate towards desiring that esteemed position. And are we willing to take the anonymous role and wash feet and not be known in history books? Like, well, God, I can't live that life. I want to live the life that's known. God, you can't ask me to do that. And yet, that's the whole Bible is asking us to do that. That's the commission is saying, well, why are you needing to be known? Are you willing to take the lowest seat if you knew it would make me known? And it's a test to our soul. So that's the debate. Who then is, the, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things, you know, in having six kids and walking through this and just observing children, there's a certain season, what we typically call it self-aware, whether or not that's the right name for it, but where you suddenly recognize that the way you smell matters. Have you ever had it where your parent's like, you need to take a bath? And the child's like, I don't want to take a bath. Uh, and, you know, their hair is sticking up. It's like, you really need to deal with your hair, okay? We're about to go to a nice venue here, and your hair is sticking up. Okay, have, have you brushed your teeth in the last week? And uh, it's like, why do I need to do that? I don't like brushing my teeth. And so there's a certain season 
where a child doesn't care what they look like. They're not doing anything to look good. And if you've ever seen a little child even worship in purity, oftentimes, whether or not they even know what they're doing, they'll just look around them and it's like, hey, I remember uh, telling my kids, you know, it's like, okay, when we go to church, I want you to watch how daddy sits in his chair, okay? Do you see daddy on the floor squirming around? No, and the kids laughed at that. They thought that was pretty funny, imagining daddy squirming around on the floor. It's like, and so just sit like daddy sits, right? Which is, I mean, that's, a, that's a big thing, to sit like daddy sits, right? But you ever notice that kids will like turn around and stare at people behind them? They have no shame. They don't have the same sense of awareness and that same dignity that begins to permeate us to say, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna embarrass myself, I'm not gonna look like that, I'm not gonna smell like that. Part of it's good, and we're very glad when it kicks in because it's like, okay, now they can finally start, you know, presenting themselves a little better, a little cleaner, a little uh, more uh, effectively, right, socially. At the same time, there's something precious about it. And it is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. You know, we need to become that way spiritually, where the way we live is like, we live for Jesus. I'll take the lowest place. Well, you do know what people will think about you. I don't care. Just like a little kid, hair sticking on end, breath smelling. (laughs) It's like, I don't care. I do this for Jesus. I take the lowest seat because he says that's the highest. And if that's the best seat in the house in Jesus' mind, that's the best seat in my mind. You see, I want to be where Jesus asks me to go. He's what I care about. He's the opinion that counts around here. Your opinion doesn't doesn't count. So if you look down on me because I take the seat Jesus gives me, well, so be it. But he's smiling. And that's what moves us. I've oftentimes described the entrance into the kingdom of heaven uh, as the ivory wall. So some of you have heard me talk about this before, but just for, to hyperbolize the concept so that you get it, we need to get past this ivory wall into this kingdom. And if we don't, we're eternally separated, and it's darkness that we're cast into. And so we can try our best to get through this ivory wall, but it's like, you know, 10 feet thick. And it stretches 10 million miles to the right. So if you were thinking of going around it this way, uh, you can't. And then it stretches 10 million miles to the left. So if you were thinking about going around it this way, you can't. And then some of you are thinking, I'm going to scale it. No, it goes 10 million miles into the the sky. So then some of you are like, "Uh, I'll dig under it. No, it goes 10 million miles into the dirt. And so... That's I'm saying, it was a hyperbole, right? And yet, what, what you see then is, okay, I can't get around this. There's, there's no way around this. So, am I at a loss or what? I mean, what, what can I do? Well, there is one way in through this impassable barrier. And it's right where the wall meets the dirt and it's just this little hole. And you have to humble yourself, get on your face, you have to leave everything, off, everything behind. Take it all off. You can't even take your little pocket watch or your, uh, your little uh, pocket knife. It'll like jam in there and you'll get stuck. You have to give up everything. And that's the one way into the kingdom of heaven. It's an entrance of humility. If you try and enter with your chest puffed out, you won't fit. But when you humble yourself, you find entry. This is the great secret of the kingdom of heaven, is it is available to those that are humble. Just as a reminder, God resists a very specific crowd of people, and that is the proud. 
but he gives grace to the humble. And so as a result, as a matter of foundational principle in our life, this isn't like a bonus feature. This is the most core foundational element of our life. If you want to grow with Jesus, if you want to have his grace, if you want to have his life, it starts with humility. And what's also interesting is it must continue with humility. It's not like you humble yourself and then rise back up and puff out your chest. Or one day you take the lowest seat and the next day you're like, well, I was humble yesterday, so now I can take the highest. And that's part of the challenge we face in a celebrity-driven culture. Because of our celebrity-ism in our culture, it can affect Christianity too, where we have celebrity Christians, where certain Christians are treated as higher. And so whenever that's the case, if you're treated as higher, because it's appropriate to show deference and respect to authority. And yet that authority still needs to, like Christ, be willing to take low place. And that's a tension for us because our culture itself, even the Christian culture, will force us into thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so as a result, this is a life lesson, not just a young kid lesson. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Principle. Our job is to humble ourselves. His job is to lift us up. We, when I was young in ministry, there was, it's still true, but uh, most people don't present it to me the way I, it, when, when you're young in ministry, people will give you a lot of opinion. And they'll tell you all their wisdom. And as you mature, they're less likely to just throw it at you the same way they did when you're young. But there was so much. It's like, you need to put yourself out there. You need to let people know that you exist. You need to, you need to, you need to, you need to. Basically, long and short, you need to look for the biggest seat, the best seat in every room you walk into, and sit in it. If I was going to enunciate it for you, when you look at Leslie's background in music, so she was a young singer, and so she had to uh, take, uh, she had an eight by 10 glossy photo Okay, when she was 15, she had, went, and it was like this modeling type of a thing. So it's like she's looking, and it's this really cool picture. It's really funny when we look at it. And she's, you know, her lip is sort of down like pouty. And, uh, and it's just like dazzling. I mean, she's beautiful in it, right? And then she needs to create a demo. And then she sends that demo to these producers in Nashville, which she did. Okay, all of this was part of the package of how you do it. You present yourself a certain way. And I remember Leslie and I having our first discussion on this. It's like, why does that not feel like it matches the model of Jesus? And yet this is what the entire system that we were growing up in was telling us to do. And so when I say that this is a life lesson, this is a life lesson for both Leslie and I from the very young age when we first met each other. I met her when she was, what, a day before 16. We've walked through this of saying, we don't want to go this way. I know this is what everyone's packaging us into. This is what we're supposed to do. But what if we threw that overboard? And what if we said, we want to promote Jesus, not ourselves? Will, will your ministry just die if you do that? Or will God promote it? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. There's your job. Your job isn't to package yourself in the sight of the Lord. Market yourself in the sight of the Lord. Promote yourself in the sight of the Lord. Your job is to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Aaron the high priest did not claim his position. 
God elevated him to it. And he says that Jesus, in the same manner, did not elevate himself to his high priesthood, but God did. So if Jesus himself, just catch this, did not exalt himself and lift himself into a position of influence, uh, how much more should we not do that? And so for many of us, especially in a culture that is, you see job openings. They're right there. And I, I have a tendency as a leader to be a gap filler. And it's a wonderful quality. I'm not going to just criticize this quality in me. But if I see a void of leadership, I'll fill it. And it's, it's instinctive. It's not even thought through. I remember this one collegiate program I was in where you go with a group through a series. So this group had been like together for like three months. And I moved from a different group into their group, which is very awkward because this group is very intimate. They know each other. For three months, they've been spending a lot of time together. And then Eric shows up. And they had a void of leadership. And so I had been there one week and I was already the leader of the group. And that's, very, that's classic Eric, okay? I come into a group and I'm like, boy, you guys need a leader. <laughs> Don't even think it. It just happens. And it's like, someone really needs to speak right here. Yeah, uh, hey, I could address that. And I'll naturally fill that. And that's a positive, but it could also be a negative. Because there's times, and I've learned this many times, where God says, be quiet. Let someone else take that position because I have assigned someone else that position. Do not usurp it. So just because there's a void does not mean it's your job to fill it. It might need your job to pray or encourage someone else to fill it. That's where the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit comes in. And there might be a lower seat where you are the intercessor for that person. And it could be very hard. I've been in situations where the leadership stunk. And, I mean, I could solve the problem with my pinky. I mean, it's just like, come on, this is ridiculous. And God's like, silence, serve. Ah, that's hard. But it's the principle of the kingdom of heaven. You see, God's not just growing me up. He's growing all of us up. And sometimes the, what he wants to teach me is not the leadership, it's the silence. He wants to teach me how to humble myself and take a low position, and that's how he can solve the riddle in the room. He needs a praying man in this situation. A praying man doesn't get the credit. Exactly. Eric, I need a praying man. All right, let's be the praying man. Pride, the clogging of the pipeline. So I, I described on Monday, I talked about the fact that we have a pipeline. When we enter into Christ by faith, we are then grafted into that vine. And that vine has sap in it. And so that pipeline, that connection that we have with the vine is real, and the Holy Spirit is like living water in that pipeline. It's pressurized, and it's full, and it's available to us. But there's a gate valve on it. And so to be able to access that living water, you have to agree. You have to do what God asks you to do. It's called obedience. And so when you agree with God, it opens up the life of God into you. And so you can be connected, you can be a believer, and believe in Jesus Christ and actually have access to the living sap of God and there's something that will block the flow of grace into your life and that is pride. And what's amazing is you could have a whole season of your life where you're humble and you're washing feet and then something can happen which jabs you. I don't know if you've ever been jabbed, you've ever been poked 
in a way where you have a tendency to rise up and be like, they can't get away with that. And your pride rises up. It's something that you've dealt with in the past, right? And you're not proud. You don't, you're not, you don't have a proud disposition, but that one situation sponsored something and you agreed with it. And you're nursing it. And what immediately happens is that grace flow cuts off. You see, it's like you're plugging up the hole or you're turning off the gate valve. And so you were walking by grace because you were walking in humility. But the moment you rise up in pride is the moment that you unwittingly have closed off the gate valve. God resists the proud. He can't, one of the best ways of saying to resist is just saying, he can't bless that. He can't give anything to that. He can't offer anything to that. He actually, he's hindered from helping the proud. But when we humble ourselves, it's the equivalent of opening the gate valve. And that grace can begin to flow through again. So this has always been for me a key point. At any point where I sense that there may be a diminishment of grace in my life. Okay, God. Would you show me if there's something that I'm rising up, I'm defending myself, I'm, I'm looking at it from my vantage point, I'm after a better seat. What, what is it, Lord, could you please show me? We all have the propensity, and we all are very vulnerable to this, but we all have the opportunity to humble ourselves. We're not like hindered from that. Sort of like, well, some people can humble themselves, but some can't. They, do, they just can't do it. My, my thought is this. I know that it's God that chooses us, and I know that it's God that enables us, but if you desire the fullness of God, and you recognize that it takes humility to get it, well, then God's gonna grant you the grace to humble yourself. <laughs> Whatever you desire and crave in your spiritual life, I guarantee you that craving came from him. So therefore, he's also going to supply it. So there isn't some human impediment that is going to disable you from being able to humble yourself if you desire to. If you desire the life of God and you know you need to humble yourself, well, then you're not the victim in this situation. God wants to assist you in this. God, I need the grace of humility. I need you to do whatever is necessary in my life. And by the way, when you pray that, you usually, I know I always add, and God, may I just be in agreement so you don't need to do extreme things. <laughs> we don't need to do anything extreme here. Just, I, I just want to agree with you so that we could just do this the most simple way. Have you ever had that thought that God could humble you in a lot of different ways because he loves you? But there's a more simple way, and that is let's just do that now, right now, in front of a smaller group instead of a, a big crowd in the future. You guys ever hear my, uh, my squeezed hand story? Uh, I was, this is one of the, I just met Leslie. She's sitting next to me in a service. And it was testimonial time in the church. And like, does anyone have testimonies? Anyone? And I had a witnessing story that week. And I felt like it would, it would look pretty good, okay, to, to share. And, you know, but it would, it would be edifying to the body. Of, co of course, there were some conflicting agendas going on inside of Eric Ludi. And so I got up and I shared this story about picking up this uh, homeless man. He wasn't homeless. He, he said he was homeless, but it turns out he had a home in downtown Denver. Uh, it was one of those scam things where they s drive people to a certain spot with a sign and then pick them up. And so I picked him up. He'd, he'd been forgotten. So he needed to get all the way to downtown Denver. And so I figured, well, what a great opportunity. I'll take you. 
and then I shared the gospel with them. I mean, this is, hey, this is a noble story, right? And as I was sharing the story, I recognized that there was really no story there because I shared the gospel with him and I prayed with him, but it's not like he accepted Christ. It just sort of was like, okay, I'll put up with it because you're taking me home, right? So I recognized about three quarters of the way through the story that I really didn't have a good story. And I'm a storyteller, right? And so, you know, a good story needs a good ending, and I had no ending for this. So you have to test and ask, Eric, why were you sharing this story in the first place? Well, I just wanted to edify the body. Yeah, I think what the real reason was is I wanted to get kudos from the body to look and appear as if I was a bold gospel tear, right? And there's a subtle shift that I began to realize. So I'm sharing the story. And I'm, I'm going through, and then I prayed with him. I said, hey, would you take my hand? And, and he took my hand. And then at the end of the story, uh, this is how I finished. I said, and then when we finished, we said amen. He squeezed my hand. And then I sat down, and everyone's like, mm-hmm. And then God, in his <clears throat> wonderful, gentle, fatherly way, says, squeezed hand, huh? guy didn't squeeze my hand, okay? I'm just telling you guys right now. He didn't squeeze my hand. That was a little bonus Eric addition to give a moment of drama at the end of the story. So I sit down and the, and the pastor says, why don't we turn to First Peter? And so they're getting going and God is convicting me. And I'm recognizing I just lied to an entire church. <laughs> I mean, and you could say, well, it's not that big of a lie. Yeah, that's what God was working on me though, that every little small thing matters, Eric. And what was that? Squeezed hand? And I had this sudden thought that I'm going to need to go up to everyone in this entire church, find them, and tell them that the guy didn't actually squeeze my hand. It sounded so ridiculous and so pathetic. So I raised my hand in the middle. Remember, I just met Leslie. She's sitting next to me for one of the first times, if ever, the first time ever. And uh, the guy said, yes, yes, sir. Uh, I go, I I need to say something. And I stand up, and I'm like, "Uh, the guy didn't uh, really squeeze my hand. He, he, that, was, that was an exaggeration. It didn't really happen, and he just held my hand. I'm so sorry, guys. That wasn't, that wasn't true. Will you, will you forgive me? And they're all like, mm, yeah, yeah. And I sat down. I mean, total humility, right? I mean, it was miserable. And yet, the grace of God that has worked through these moments when I'm proud, he's like, Eric, I can't bless that. I can't edify through pride. How about we choose the opposite route? Humility? See, that's what we don't want, guys. We don't want to have the in front of the church type of thing. So whatever is the easiest way, usually we're like, God, I would prefer that. There's nothing quite like the in front of the church model, though, to uh, train your soul. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a life lesson for us right there. Let's... Live the life of grace. Let's live the life of humility. Learning to go low. So uh, one of the things that I was talking with Hudson about uh, this week is just the principle of embarrassing moments. Because at Ellerslie, we'll always have a, a session of most embarrassing moments. Nights, and it's really fun. But it's actually a decision in life, and it's a funny one. I want you to think about this, of actually making a conscious decision to say, I'm okay if people laugh at me. And you know that once you do that, it frees you. 
in a huge way. There's a lot of people that actually have never come to that point and, and really struggle. It's like, God, I don't know that I could ever do that. If I had an embarrassing moment, I could never share it. And yet Hudson was sharing with me the other day that he's, he, he recognizes how valuable an embarrassing moment is. It's like it actually is something that brings endearment between two people because when you're willing to just acknowledge that you did something and let someone laugh at you, it actually is precious and it, and it, and it frees you as an individual. And so I was just notating that afresh. The exercise of sharing funny and embarrassing moments. Uh, for me, I remember when I was, it's called the bartender moment. It sounds a little more risque than it is. Uh, but I was in uh, college and all the guys at the table were talking about John F. Kennedy Jr., and saying that he had failed the bar exam. And he'd failed it like three times. And I was just shocked. And you, know, for, you know, and you could say, what were you shocked about? The fact that he failed it? No, yes, but the fact that he was, he was even taking it in the first place. And you could say, why are you shocked about that? Well, because I didn't know what a bar exam was. I'm in college, okay? I'm in you know, uh, pre-med, I'm doing a double major in biology and chemistry. You'd think I would understand that. But there's little gaps that we have in our understanding, no one ever taught us. And so it was really bothering me that all my buddies were talking about him failing the bar exam and none of them were bringing this up. And so we were walking back to the dorms and finally I was like, okay guys, this is like six guys in college, right? And, and I said, why is it that no one is willing to acknowledge the elephant in the room and that is, why is a son of a president studying to be a bartender in the first place? Yeah, see, the bar exam is for law, and so for those of you that don't know, I'm saving you some serious embarrassment in the future. He was studying to be a lawyer, and uh, I thought he was studying to be a bartender because he was taking the bar exam. So those moments for each of us oftentimes get buried, and what I want to say is those moments are precious if you use them properly. And if you're willing, I'm the type of guy that if I walk into a glass wall thinking it's a door, I'll turn around and say, did anyone see that? Other people, they walk into the glass and then act like they're polishing it and, and then try and find the, the right door. And what I would encourage is it's been a very significant thing in my life to allow people to find humor in my mistakes because it frees me. It makes it easier to be humble in a strange regard. The steps downward. Okay, so this sounds bad at first, steps downward, but if we're wanting to take a low seat, there's all sorts of opportunities in life. And they start simple, and they migrate in a greater and greater degree. This is part of sanctification. It starts with a willingness to acknowledge wrong. That's how Christianity begins. I, God, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. You're, you're righteous. I have violated your law. That's, that's just where it starts. The willingness to confess sin publicly. It's one thing to confess sin, Lord, I've sinned talk with him about it. That's a big deal for some of us. But to be able to come up to someone else and say, look, I did something wrong and this is what it was. Woof. That's a big step, but that's a step down. In the right way, it's a step down. It's a step to a lower seat because in our culture, it's frowned upon. And so as a result, when we deliberately obey the truth of scripture, we say, no, I'm willing to do that. Willingness to laugh at my own embarrassments. Willingness to be rebuked by elders. I don't know if you've ever been rebuked but your first instinct is to not want it. At the same time, when you embrace it, it is such a blessing in your life. Willingness to be rebuked by donkeys. That's different than elders. That's like a vessel God may choose to use, but it's not a very uh, 
easy one to hear from. Okay, I've had some donkeys that have given me some pearls of wisdom. <laughs> and it was an exercise of humility to be able to receive it. It's like, whoo, boy, the source, God, the source is not very good, but it's truth. Oh, and that's a very, very significant thing in my life. Willingness to appear a failure. I don't know if you've ever walked through this, but you may not be a failure, but are you willing to appear a failure? Now, by the way, everything I'm saying is modeled in Jesus Christ. Willingness to have your good evil spoken of. Willingness to have the credit given elsewhere. Willingness to be mocked. Willingness to be falsely accused. Willingness to be treated as less than human. You see, as we progress through this, you recognize that, first of all, Jesus modeled this, and you have to recognize he came from a lot higher position than we're asked to come from. He's king of kings, lord of lords. And we don't have to step down that far. But for us, these are big deals. Willingness to give up everything, even life. Willingness to be stripped of covering. Willingness to be thought of as a criminal. Willingness to suffer as a criminal. Willingness to die as a criminal. If you've ever been falsely accused, one of the most difficult things about it is the concept of perception. It's like here you were doing right and yet it's being treated as if it was wrong behavior and your motive is questioned, your actions are questioned and they're treated as criminal and you want to defend yourself. And so to be able to walk through that with humility is, is a taking of a lower seat. It's a very significant movement of the soul. But to be thought of as a criminal is hard. To suffer as a criminal, oh, now... To, I've never been falsely accused in the sense of being sentenced to a prison term or a jail term for something I didn't do. But I, I, I have to imagine that's a tough one to carry, okay? And that's Jesus. That's what he walked through. He carried a sentence that was not his own. He was innocent, and yet he was judged. Willingness to die as a criminal. I mean, it's one thing to be thrown into prison, but how about to be executed as a criminal publicly without defense to say, I'm innocent, guys. Silent as a lamb unto slaughter. Okay, guys, I think we have some lower seats that we could begin to choose in God's kingdom. You know what? There's a seat open there. Could you imagine if these were all seats and we're all like, who's going to take that one? And we all need to fill them. It's like just the number, probably about the same number as who we have in this room. And, you know, we're looking back at this one. I'm willing to, to acknowledge that I'm wrong. And that one gets sat in. That's the best seat <laughs> in this one. The lowest seat. And who in here is willing to die as a criminal? Well, can, what, what do you mean by that, Eric? Uh, yeah, well, you be deemed a criminal, publicly reviled, and thought of as a criminal even to your dying breath. And then afterwards, they'll come up with all sorts of rumors about how you were still a criminal and then someone robbed your body from the grave. I mean, this is Jesus stuff. He speaks the language of humility in everything he's ever done and ever does. This is who has moved inside of us and this is the language he desires us to speak. When we go into any room, let us allow the Spirit of God to show us lower seats and let us continue to allow him to mature us in taking those seats and relishing the fact that as we sit in it, we are revealing the kingdom of heaven. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, this is what he says. 
Isn't it interesting to think we could listen to a quotation from Almighty God? He's about to say something. What's he going to say? I dwell in the high and holy place with him who, who what's, who's it going to be? Who does he dwell with? With him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Those that will populate heaven are humble. That's a defining attribute of who they are because that's the only way to enter in to the kingdom of heaven is to be humble. That's the way to thrive in the kingdom of heaven is to remain humble. So may God build that in each of us. Father, I pray that that grace would work in us and that we would agree with you, that we'd be willing to seek a lower spot, that we'd be willing to bend, that we'd be willing to look wrong, appear wrong, be foolish in this world's eyes so that you would be seen more clearly. Lord, we want to speak the language of heaven. We do. But we are natively proud. We naturally gravitate towards higher seats. I pray, Lord, that you would convert us in that area, that you would regenerate our behaviors to truly resemble, to showcase yours. We love you. We submit to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.